you know. Repitan todas, solamente español. Vamos. ¿Dónde está mi pluma? Repitan, por favor. Oh, that sucks. All right, now that I have your attention at least, I have, you know, this is a crowd that just, it's unbelievable how big this crowd is, but today what I'm supposed to do in spite of the large, largeness of this crowd is talk about physician wellness. Now, I'm not sure why they picked me for this because I'm not well, but I realize that. At least I, I know my limitations, as it were. Um, so there's no pimp questions this morning. You don't have to worry about one thing. I will not pimp anybody except Dr. Pruitt, okay? And I'll just go right after it. It's like, what were you thinking? Oh my God, you know, stupid, stupid. You know, I believe in positive education. You know, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. No, anybody, uh, I know that Andy's worked with me and Chris has worked with me. Uh, we've had a good time. Yeah, I'll remember his name later on. But so uh, <laughs> Matt, you know, has worked with me. And, you know, some of the residents even have, they've worked against me. And I realized that. Nor do I blame them. They, they want to get out of the way of good, I want to get out of the way of good medical care, which, what I do best, you know, so I, I try to as an emergency physician. You know, today what we're going to talk about is how much control you have in the emergency room. How much control do you have in the emergency room? I'm convinced that we have none. Um, when, about, about the only control that I have other than my bladder when I come in to the emergency room is and there's several ways. I've seen several of my colleagues do this. Have you ever seen like an emergency medicine physician put up books like in the morning? That's the only thing. I just kind of, Dr. Aguilar is good at this. He like sorts out paper because that's the only thing he has control over for the rest of his shift is sorting out that paper that's on the machine. You know, he gets rid of all that. Have you ever noticed? So what I do sometimes in a passive aggressive, either that or an Alzheimer's moment, I take half of those sheets and wait until he's taken all of the sheets off and then I put the other half on there. Because <laughs> it keeps the man busy and makes him feel like he's in control of the situation, which is, which is certainly not true, you know? And, and in emergency medicine, yeah, I used to be a family practitioner out in the middle of nowhere and this and that, and I won't go through all of that today. I, you know, people are getting bored of those stories, and quite frankly, I am too. I, and also, due to Alzheimer's, I can't remember half the stories anymore, so it's just slipping away, you know, left and right. So uh, yeah, this, this is a tough topic, mainly because the minute you see this on the slide, you go, oh, great, you know, this is going to be just about as good as candy corn, you know? And, and, and I, I really... Well, come on, Who, who's, who's eaten candy corn and liked it? You know, thank you. That's, you know, does that not say it all right there, Dr. Fink? You know, you're, you're dismissed. You can, you can leave. But I know that when people, when people look at this title, they immediately, uh, there's a little switch that goes off and you go, God, if I could just make it through the next 50 minutes with Hughes, I'll be okay, you know? However, I think I have a few good things to say and even if I don't, you know, I'll make some jokes up and we'll move along, you know. But for all you people getting ready to go into your emergency medicine residency, for all the medical student colleagues, because I do consider you colleagues, you know, who are getting ready to go into emergency medicine or considering it, I think that it's very, very important to realize why we went into this specialty and what we're going to do with it and what we see in the future. Emergency medicine is really a young specialty. Uh, I remember when Titten Alley's, you know, this is how old I am, 
uh, Judith Tintinelli wrote a book. She still writes a book. Well, no, no, her fellows write this book. And it's, does, is she going to listen to this podcast? <laughs> you know, okay. Anyway, the, the, the fellows wrote a book this, this thick back in 1987. It was this thick. Now it is this thick and you have to hire people to carry it around for you, you know? <laughs> and so emergency medicine is, has, has been a growing specialty. And not only that, we have a lot of concerns because we end up being the doctor's doctor we end up being the, you know, the physician's doctor and also the patient's doctor. And when we go to, to work, we know that there's going to be absolutely no control. We have no control over anything that, I, that I'm aware of. You know? And we'll talk about that a little bit. I, I think that one thing that is certainly true is that we do have control over the ABCs. And I've said this time and again that you know, this computer is going to be a little slow today, so I'll go to sleep in between slides. You just don't, don't worry about it here. I'm not sure, Hans, I, you know, I have had trouble with it. The ABCs of emergency medicine, what are the ABCs? Very good, and it wasn't even in Spanish. I disagree. It's accuse, blame, criticize, and deny, which is, which is what, it's, it's what physicians, you know, that's, yeah, there you go, Tenali, you know, you know, I'll carry it for you for five bucks, you know. Accuse, blame, criticize, and deny. That's what a lot of physicians do their best. It's like, oh man, I can't believe it. I'm the world's best doctor. If you notice my title, that was my title you know, at, the, at the front end of this lecture, Jason Hughes WBD, because my mom thinks at least that I'm the world's best doctor, and I do too. However, I know that there are times when I leave, when I go home, that I'm really not the world's best doctor, and maybe I'm not even close to it, and I don't feel that way when I've left my shift. We have some objectives today, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> you know, we gave them back, you know, here's 10 now, <laughs> too thick for me, you know, there you go, it's too heavy, it's too thick, it's not mine, you know, you know, give me the cliff notes or I'm not, you know, right, you know, I could write cliff notes, emergency medicine, it'd be great, you know, maybe I'd, you know, you actually have a publication. You know, I'm going to talk about the, you know, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm known for not having, I'm, I'm like the, the one on the bottom of, you know, Graeber has like 60,000 publications. I have two, you know, and uh, I'm just happy to have those, that many. But we're going to talk about the fishbowl concept because in emergency medicine, you may know it, I may know it, that everybody's looking at us. You know, now there are people who are judging us by how many patients we're seeing per hour, whether the patients are happy, and yet we have radiology technicians, we have people uh, who are not really under our guise. We don't really, we're not even really, you know, the boss of them, as it were. We're not able to actually be in control of the people that are even working with us and sometimes against us. And so the fishbowl concept is very important because physicians are watching you, patients are watching you, big brother's watching you. Also, have you seen the cameras there in little bowls, you know? Sometimes I just, you know, go, you know, in front of the, just to see if, you know, I, I just like to envision like a security guard going, yeah, you know, you know, on the other side of that, like, what is Hughes doing, you know? I'm going to try to tell you some, some ways to avoid poor health. As you can already tell, I have poor health because I'm giving this lecture. But really, we're going to just talk a little bit about poor health and a little bit about impairment. And, and really, that is important because all of us, all of us in this room, at one time or another, depending on how you define impairment, we will be impaired. 
at one time in our careers, whether we go into family practice or whether or not we go into any, anything, family practice, emergency medicine, we will be impaired at one point in our lives. Whether it's a short point or a long point really depends on our impairment. So be ready for that. I'm gonna to try to show you and discuss you know, how we can recognize impairment, not only in ourselves, but in our friends and colleagues, and then how to handle that impairment. Okay, that sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? And, and I really want you to look at yourselves, you know, what, you know, not look at yourselves right now, put the mirrors down, you know, but look at yourselves in, in an overall way, in an overall concept, in the, you know, the chakras, if you will, you know, your alignment. Do you, do you belong in emergency medicine? Do you think that that's where you belong? Do you belong, you know, say for instance, doing two shifts a month in a small emergency room or maybe 20 shifts in a large, very fast-paced emergency room? And we'll talk about some of those things as well. It's a new way. It's a new way because emergency medicine is a new specialty. And so we have to look at it that way. You know, there are pros and cons to our shift work. How many people, and myself included, I said after family practice, I was on call every third night I did OB. Hut, hut. You know, you know, out came a baby, you know, the father clamped the cord and threw it over to the nurse who dried it off. And then it looked blue and ugly at the beginning. And now I think they're okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that after I was doing every third night call and delivering babies because I was on call all the time, I said, you know what, emergency medicine is for me. I want to do shift work because I know exactly how I can be in control of my schedule. And now when I look back at that, I think that shift work is one of the most difficult things you could possibly do. If you think that shift work is built just so you can go camping up in the, in the Bounty Waters, which is what I do like to do, you know, it still is very important to realize that we are a profession and that when we leave, even though it's shift work, we're responsible for the patients that we leave. And in order to understand our health and how we're going to deal with our own health as emergency physicians, we have to realize we have responsibilities, that they just don't go out the door when we leave at the end of the shift. Okay, and the fishbowl concept again, it is a new way of looking at medicine. For a long time, you know, Parkland Hospital down in Dallas, they had one side was internal medicine, the other side was surgery. It's probably still that way at this point. But quite frankly, there, there were no emergency room physicians there. And so really, we weren't being, they weren't being at that time in the emergency room, really being looked at closely, you know, how quickly they were seeing patients, where patients were moving through the emergency room, where were the choke points? In other words, where, where were we slowing down in the emergency room and why? Okay. And it's a new field with new questions. Constantly I hear about ways in which we should do shift work. We should rotate through the shifts, you know. You do an eight to whatever, and then pretty soon you, you move over to a 4 p.m. to 12 midnight, and then you're doing like a 10.30 to 6.30, and that's supposed to be a way to do it. Uh-uh. You know, I'm telling you, for me, I, I tell you, I feel like something that you wouldn't want to step in at the end of, you know, at a, at a 6.30 in the morning shift, going until 2.30. I'm like, after doing night shifts, I have no idea where I am. I blubber for the first three hours, you know. And then finally, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, to, to do my work. But it really, really takes a while to kind of roll through those shifts. We'll talk about that as well. But we certainly have some questions for you. And it's something that I think it's important for the ALS students to realize that these are, these are important questions. And even for me, right now in, my, in, my, in this part of my career, it's important questions to ask probably daily. You know, especially with that drunk who was standing on the bed saying, when are the pigs coming in? You know, it's like, 
I got to think about it. What attracted me to emergency medicine? The fact that that's funny, or or the fact that they're <laughs> the the fact that they're wetting on themselves. You know, I mean, what what really is? What attracted me to emergency medicine? When people count how many patients I'm seeing per hour, even though I have no control over my external environment, when, when they're counting how patient satisfaction is at two in the morning. You know, my patient satisfaction scores hit rock bottom when I did just night shifts. Why? They're all drunk. They don't remember their doctor. You know, they, you know, they get this press caney thing in the mail. They go, I, I don't remember him, but he probably wasn't nice. You know? you know, I threw up on him. I remember that part, you know? So what attracted you to emergency medicine? What's attracting you right now to emergency medicine? Because emergency medicine is a full-time job whether or not you look at the number of shifts. If you've looked at the number of shifts that you're doing this month, say for instance, if you're doing 12 shifts, you think, oh, this is a piece of cake. Uh-uh. Because it, it takes really someone to, it takes time to recover from the shifts that you've done, especially if you've done 12-hour shift, which I used to do down in a small emergency room down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Oh, piece of cake, right? You know, I'll do five 12-hour shifts in a row. And then, you know, all I would do is like I needed a Foley and sit in a wheelchair for the other five days, you know. You know, had my, had my walker, you know. I was like, okay, you know. And then finally, you know, after those five days off, I was ready to get back onto the, you know, I had the dreads. You know, those dreads where you go, oh, man, I don't know if I, I, I really want to go to work again. And finally, I get back into it, and I'm okay. Now, do you plan on retiring early? You know, it's something to ask yourselves, because we don't know really the, the long statistics. You know, Harlow's going to talk a little bit about longevity in emergency medicine, and I think that's something that you need to think about, too. If you're going into emergency medicine, right now, we don't have a lot of statistics. You know, are you going to retire early, or are you going to have to retire early? It's a burnout profession. It's a profession that we know as, as young folks get out of residency that there are lots of reasons for the burnout and I've already mentioned several of those reasons and so it's things to think about. I plan on retiring tomorrow so I'm okay with that. How can you possibly avoid burnout, depression, and stress in emergency medicine? I think it's very, very difficult. I think that there will be times where you will have all three and that that's what we talk about when we talk about impairment and why that's important. So are you in the right field? Maybe not, maybe so. How can you tell? Anybody? I don't know. You know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not sure. There are certain days where I think, you know, I'm glad I picked emergency medicine. There are certain days where, man, I hate this profession. You know, I want to go sell shoes. And in fact, Dr. Peters, Bobby Peters, used to sell shoes, and I want to sell shoes with Dr. Peters. You know, we. We would make a great combination because no one would buy any, you know, but we would have a lot of fun, you know. So really, you're not going to know if you like this profession or not until you tried it. Really, really tried it. And I don't mean just in residency, but when you get out. You know, the percentage of physicians who change their initial um, job after the first year of being in emergency medicine is very, very high. In fact, one of my classes, it was 100% after, you know, after their first year out in emergency medicine. They said, you know, I really don't like this particular way of doing emergency medicine. So they changed totally, 100%. All of us went and did a different thing. I went into academics for some strange reason, and then other people went into smaller emergency rooms. Then some of my class went into larger emergency rooms. And then one of my class members said, uh-uh, this is not for me. I'm going to go ahead and go into anesthesiology. And there were reasons that he did so. And I think this is one of those things now, while you're in residency, while you're a medical student, while you're one of our colleagues going through what we go through, 
I think it's important to sit down and reevaluate. Why did you go into this? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to feel at the end of it? What do you feel like right now, you know, that you're, you're having to deal with these types of patients? It's not all excitement, folks. It's not putting in that central line. It's not doing that spinal tap. None of that stuff is really a lot of fun after you've done it for a while, all right? You can do it with your hands and your eyes tied behind your back. I, I can visualize that, but I'm not sure if it's possible. However, all these procedures are really fantastic and it's fun to do and they're really great, but quite frankly, you're not going to do these procedures every day. And also, quite frankly, you're going to deal with the drug abusers, you're going to deal with the alcoholics, you're going to deal with the sickest of the sickest patients who have not taken care of themselves. You are going to take care of patients who don't, can't afford money, you know, their, their medications. You're going to take care of patients uh, who are angry, angry at the system, who are angry at you. You're going to deal with physicians who are angry at you because you called them at 2 in the clock in the morning. And 2 o'clock in the morning is no time for you to call them, and they don't like that. And so you're going to have to deal not only with the patient side of things, but also with the physician side of things as well. Now, this is the short form that Jason is handing out right now of Tintin Alley. This is, this is the three-page version. I'm telling you, you know, three pages is all you need. So what I say is, even when you're out in private practice, look at your performance, look at your desire to go to work. Do you really want to go to work? Is there something that's keeping you from wanting to go to work? And if so, why? You know, why do you have this desire not to go to work other than maybe you're tired? You know, is there something that's keeping you from wanting to go to the emergency room and do your job? If so, it's time to reevaluate with your supervisors, reevaluate with your colleagues. You know, something about emergency medicine too is your colleagues, you, you pass off stuff to them and you really don't know about their lives very much, you know, and unless you get together every so often. And you know from uh, a lot of my colleagues who, you know, just graduated, they know that I was working on the night of graduation and I wanted to be there, you know, eating good food and stuff in the you know, Hawkeye Bowl or whatever you call that thing. I, I want to be doing that, but I didn't have a chance. I was actually, you know, having to work, believe it or not. When I, when I was teaching my first ACLS course here, I, I called <laughs> I, honest to God, I call them the black eyes, you know, I was like, I did not make friends, you know, I just, you know, was having trouble, you know, finding the words and so black eyes came out and that's the way it was. Okay, so the unique field, we're the patient's doctor, we're the doctor's doctor, and we have really dual loyalty and you you've know that I've mentioned this before, we have this kind of negotiation that we have to make. And why is this important for physician wellness? Because we're constantly negotiating with patients, negotiating with doctors, trying to see whether or not we're really getting good information from our physicians, whether or not the patient should be able to go home, whether or not the angry patient really has something wrong with them, whether, whether or not the drunk patient should really be worked up a little bit more. So we have this dual loyalty. We're trying to keep the doctors at home at least a little happy with us, but we're also trying to do what's right and what's appropriate for the patient. So it's your new beginning. What to do upon your arrival into this field, I'm telling you. Handling of the patients, how do you do that? Handling of the doctors and the contract. I'm going to talk, believe it or not, for physician wellness for the first few minutes about your contract when you get out into emergency medicine and tell you why that's important for your wellness. Right now you have no control over that and I realize it. Once you get into this field, you know, as a resident, I realize that you have no control of your contract. You're in the poverty level, you're getting food stamps and you're eating most of your food down in the cafeteria and, and getting larger and larger by the minute because I know what they, I know what they serve down there. I've seen it, you know, yeah, yeah, I've smelled it. I know what's down there. Have you, have you smelled onion rings at two in the morning, man? There is just something about that that just makes me nauseated. And I, I still, I eat them, I eat them. <laughs> You know? yeah. 
they're there, I'm there, you know. <laughs> you know? You know, and at the end of it, you know, I look around to see who's really trained in CPR, you know, because I'm getting older, you know, and when that pops right to my LAD, I want to know who's going who's gonna to put me in room three and not put a Foley in right at the beginning, you know, right? So my question for you, when you get out into, into the real private world, when you get out into the academic world, is who owns the contract? Believe it or not, that's important. I found out that that's important when I went into academic and also private medicine. I did private medicine down in El Paso, Texas for some reason, and what was very interesting is the contract itself was owned by an individual physician in all of the hospitals out in the private world. Why was that important to my wellness? Well, very interesting is if one individual held on to the contract, one individual was making a lot of money off of what I did. One individual was not concerned about my well-being or my wellness. That one individual wanted me to go to work and make a lot of money and make all the doctors upstairs very, very happy with what I did. And they really didn't care what I did afterwards. They wanted to make money. What was their schedule? That single person who was making money? What do you think their schedule was? I mean, they were on the back nine at three o'clock in the afternoon. They did three shifts, no kidding, three shifts per week, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. You know, and why did they do that? Because they owned the contract, one single person. And I'm telling you, look at that very closely when you get out. That's going to be very, very important to your wellness, right? Do you get taken off the schedule if someone doesn't like you? I, I definitely have been in the past, you know. I, I mean, I, I fought for the patient, and then all of a sudden I looked at August. I, I'm not on the schedule. I wonder why. Is it my sabbatical that month? It's like, no, you know, I'm really not being invited uh, the next month. And, and why is that? Again, the individual person who owns the contract. You know, you have no due process. What happens is you just get taken off the, con you know, get taken off the schedule. All of a sudden, you lose your benefits, and all of a sudden, that's it for your wellness, quite frankly. So that's why I discuss this, not only with our medical student colleagues, because it's something that you're going to have to look at. This is such a new field, and as someone put it one time, is that emergency medicine physicians are backpackers. You know, that's what we like to do. We like to get out. We like to do things. You know, Moab, you know, Dr. Nillis is, you know, joining, you know, doctors without Nillis's, you know, and, you know, <laughs> And I know that we all like to do different things. Hey, look, you know, I'm telling you, they, he asked me for an evaluation. I said, look, you know, he's an imperialist. Watch out. He's from Great Britain. You know? You know? And, it, and, and I gave, I gave Dr. I gave Dr. Nillis the book 1776 as a going away present, you know? You know? I said, you couldn't take our country, man. You know? If, if you can't take our country, you can't do anything, you know? You know, General Howe was back there drinking hooch, you know, for about three months while we were getting together like bullets and sticks and stuff, and we beat him with that, you know. And, and I told Nillis, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to do, but Nillis, quite frankly, what does he do? He, he's very transient. He does things that are very, very different, and that's what emergency medicine offers you, and I think that's great. But also, it's very, very important to realize that if you want a very, very solid schedule and that you want to work in a very solid emergency room, look very, very careful at the contract itself. You know, do you have a right to due process before you get canned? I think that that's also very, very important. Oh, I'm not going to be impaired. There's no way. I'm too good. You know, I love my mother and I have three cats and three dogs. They all love me. And I have a wife and nine kids and we go to church every day. You know, you know that you're never going to be impaired, which I disagree with. Again, 
there's a few horror stories in my own backyard. You know, I've seen them and I've seen them go through the things that they have to go through has almost been hellish. You know, and had we been prepared for it, maybe or maybe not, we could have actually avoided that impairment. You know, once impairment happens though, either drugs, alcohol, or impairment just because you're having a difficult day, you know, that certainly can be impairment. Have you ever had one of those days where you just go and you go, man, you know, I got that central line, also I got a pneumothorax, two procedures, you know, <laughs> ooh -hoo, all right, you know. And, and then there's days where you just can't hit anything. If you were asked to do an IV in the biggest vein in the world, you couldn't do it. You know, I've been there, you know, or actually I put in an IV and then I did a bleeding. You know, I forgot that you're actually supposed to like hold on pressure, you know, it's just spurting blood and, you know, and Joe Arnold was saying, you know, doc, normally we don't do bleedings now in this century, you know. So, you know, no, you're never going to be impaired. No, that's not true. You're going to be impaired one way or the other. However, which way you want to look at it, you're going to be impaired at one point in your life. And so here we go, you know. Let me give you a contract number one just to talk about that, owned by the one physician, desired to make lots of money and didn't really care about my well-being. And if I had been on fire, he wouldn't have peed on me to put me out, you know. And so, which is kind of an interesting concept in and of itself. Contract number two, I actually worked in, with a, a very democratic group up, uh, in northern Minneapolis called the Emergency Physicians Professional Association, or EPA, owned by a physician, or actually owned by a group of physicians, you know, what happens was the president of the association took me on the interview up there and he had to do the same percentage of shifts, nights, days, and also mid-shifts, as well as holidays, and as well as weekends, as the rest of the entire group. This is a five-hospital group and it was almost painfully democratic, but it was very, very important to me when I joined this group. You know, you could go to 100% time, 80% time, all the way to 50% if you wanted to that each individual director of each hospital was actually voted on. The, the physicians in the emergency group voted on their director, you know, who they wanted to be the emergency room director. Why was that important? Well, who was going to bat for you when things were really difficult? I remember at one point an orthopedic doctor, you know, said, it's a montageous fracture, which is a both bone fracture angulated about this way, you know, and this little kid. He said, oh, send it home, put it, the kid in the splint and have them do some push-ups when they get home. And then, you know, in a, I'll see him in a few days. And my emergency room director, you know, called him up and I heard the conversation. It's like, Ed? You don't like what you're doing in orthopedics. You don't like the practice of orthopedics. You don't like people, you know, and people don't like you, you know. And quite frankly, I'm not liking you right now. You know, so uh, either come in or we're going to find a, a real orthopedist to deal with this. Now, that's not a bad way to bat for somebody, right? That's an emergency room director that's right on key. I could have called him at any time of the day and he would have batted for me. You know, and that was important. I had a bad outcome case. We all looked at the case. He batted for me on that particular case and said, there's nothing different that we would have done. It's unfortunate that it happened, but we're not going to just say, oh, we'll write this off, which happens a lot of the times. We'll say, ah, you know, the, yeah, we didn't really screw up, but you know, we'll go ahead and give them a free visit. You know, and that's sometimes what emergency room directors do. It's a free visit, uh, you know, she's dead. So we'll make it free so we won't get uh, sued which is the worst thing in the world that you think of. Or they weren't happy with your care, so we won't really charge the patient for that. It does happen. So the directors for each hospital are elected. There's an admonition here though, right? No vote of confidence. Each year, they, there was a vote of confidence. If there was no vote of confidence, what occurred, one of the emergency room physicians actually had to step up and be voted in. 
and so now they got to do their administrative work as well. Once they became administrators, though, their amount of shifts that they did decreased, but their percentage of holidays, nights, weekends, and so on was the same. And it was important. They felt that it was very, very important. The president of the association was about 60 at the time, and I was very impressed that he was able to do the things that he was able to do administratively, but he also had the same percentages of those night shifts and day shifts. He was in touch with what was going on in the emergency room. And because of that, he was able to bat for us. He knew what the difficulties were. Okay, and you know, if there was no vote of confidence for that director, you could become the director. All physicians worked the same, nobody was exempt, and if they decided to make themselves exempt, there was no vote of confidence that occurred fairly quickly. Alrighty, so contract number three, the independent contractor. And some of you folks who are doing some moonlighting, the, the, uh, a lot of people don't agree that emergency room residents should do moonlighting, and I'm not going to get into that. However, I know that some of you do perform in some of these smaller towns and do moonlighting. There's the independent contractor. Believe it or not, I worked for the Schumacher Group down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Saved my career, I think, at that point. I really do, because I'd been working for these individual contractors who were just like, it was unbelievable. And so the Schumacher Group is owned by a physician, Kip Schumacher, who called me up and said, you know, will you work up there in Las Cruces? So it was still a small group, but I was an independent contractor, and yes, there were no benefits. You know, you get no medical benefits. So believe me, when you want to try to get health insurance in Texas, if you have a hangnail, man, that was tough. So I paid three grand a year for just, you know, catastrophic insurance, you know, if I got hit by a flood in El Paso, you know, which happens, you know, once every no years. Okay, so, you know, you, you get lots of money every month, you know, you really do. You get this large paycheck of which half goes to Uncle Sam, at least if you're an independent contractor, I guarantee it. So tax season comes around and what I've seen independent contractors do, again, very important for your wellness and well-being, right? If you get this big check and then you say, huh, I'm going to buy a new car, and you buy a new car and yet you still owe Uncle Sam something, guess what happens? Then you're already working the next year to take care of the prior tax season so you can pay that uh, upcoming tax season. Believe me, you have to be very, very careful. So I got an accountant who said, Jason, you're going to have to be careful because I know you, you know. So that was very, very important for my well-being to find someone who was able to help me through that particular problem. So why do you care about this? You know, the contract, ability to work in environment, that's about the only control you have. When, when you join an emergency room group, that really is about the only control you have. When you get to the emergency room, you will have, <clears throat> excuse me, you will have, does the podcast pick it up when I have to clear my throat? Okay, well, <laughs> never mind. Okay, I'm going to sing now. Um, you know, the, the only, only, I do a great Ethel Merman, but I won't do it right now, you know. Um, she's dead, I think, you know. So I'll, anyway, I, I won't do that. So just to save you all the pain. But your contract and your ability to work really, really is very, very important because that environment of which you have no control over is going to happen regardless. When you walk into that emergency room, will you feel comfortable that people are batting for you at that time? Some physicians will not like you. Are you going to be able to deal with that? You know, are you, are you able to deal with people who don't like you? I am now. It, it finally dawned on me that everybody's just not going to love me. You know, I, I'm, you know, that's just the way it is. And that's the way life is. And believe it or not, some patients don't like me. 
you know, because I won't give them a thousand milligrams of Demerol, and I just don't do that. I say I don't use Demerol. You know, Naomi and I found that out recently when we went into a, a room where a lady was holding on to her entire face, saying, "I need something for pain. I don't need narcotics, but I'm allergic to everything except Demerol. So if you just give me that, I'll be fine." And then she called me some stuff that I can't repeat on podcast. Podcast. <clears throat> ASAP president said many, many years ago that the greatest reason for emergency physician burnout was the interaction with the consultant population. When I interviewed, I wanted to find out what the consultants were like. I knew and know what they're like in the academic setting. I wanted to know what they were like in the private settings where I signed up, where I decided to go to. What are your consultants like? One of the most important things, who are your more difficult consultants? What do you do in case you're dealing with a bad consultant? Who can you call? What is your chain of command to go through? Do you go to emergency room director? Do you go to the chief of staff? These are very, very important questions and also important for your well-being and your wellness. We're in the fishbowl. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're constantly negotiating, you know, between the physicians at home, the patients at your doorstep, and press gaining. You know, now I've talked a lot about press gaining and, and people know about my, you know, ideas and ideals about press gaining. But what happens is Press Ganey, Press, who is an archaeologist, believe it or not, look it up online, Dr. Press, who makes lots of money, and Dr. Ganey came together and they were smoking weed <clears throat> in the back of some small room somewhere. And they said, what we'll do is we'll send out how happy we're making certain people. And what we'll do is we'll put this percentage up for everybody to see about how happy you're making different individual people. Okay? Well, there was a problem with that. A lot of people don't fill out forms, you know, that are, that are mailed to them, and so they don't care. A lot of people really, you know, were, had such awful care because they didn't get that Demerol. Boy, man, they're writing in red Crayola, you know what I'm saying? Red rum, red rum, you know, I mean, they're like, you know, I mean, this is, I've seen, I've seen some of these evil, you know, you know, I, I've seen them, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, I'm like, you know, wow, you know, and then people who really, really love you, every once in a while you'll get that one. But quite frankly, most of the people won't fill out a press gainy sheet because they're, you know, a modicum. They're happy. They're in the middle. They got their care. You know, they felt like they got appropriate care and they went home and guess what? They didn't fill out the press gainy sheet. Okay. Now, in Iowa, our wait time in the entire United States is the least in all the emergency rooms in the United States. You know, and we're judged by that, believe it or not, in academic and also in private settings. Why is this important to your wellness? If people take that particular, how many patients you're seeing per hour, how happy are you making them per hour, then if they take that and put it in their formulation, you know, what they will do is say, you get extra money if you make people extra happy. So what happened to me? Well, I went into a private practice in northern Minnesota in a great practice, but it was a Demerol emergency room. And that was the reason. It became a Demerol emergency room. And believe me, it's the most dangerous emergency room you can imagine. So it's data looking at patient satisfaction. If they put in that particular formula there, it will affect your well-being, I guarantee it. And so how you're paid, how your bonus is given. Finally, how many people you're seeing per hour. Well, in that practice that I was working in in Minneapolis, they said about an average of 1.5 patients per hour is as much as you should see. You know, anything above that, you will get a small, small bonus for. And we didn't care how happy people were because we know, just like Southwest Airlines, I don't know if you've ever seen them online or on television, they said one thing that I think was totally appropriate. The president of Southwest Airlines said, the customer is just not always right. 
you know, and it's true, and especially in, in our field. So it's the good life. We have days off, lots of them. However, it's a total deception. If you think you have a lot of days off, remember you have recovery days. You also have not only those recovery days, you need two days for at least one night on, and you happen to be a night shift worker. Should there be a differential? Should you pay people more who work night shifts who like them? I think so. I think it's something to consider, okay? For your well-being, if you don't like night shifts and don't do well at rotating through your shifts, maybe you'll find the people who like night shifts, you know, pay them a little extra. I think that that's very appropriate. And, and should there be a differential? Some people think yes, some people no. So how do we avoid poor health? That's what we're really here to talk about. I've talked to you about, you know, really the most important thing, I think, how to avoid getting into a situation where you're not going to be happy. And that is most important. Don't be afraid to ask those things in an interview. You know, say, what, what about this? Let me talk to some of your other staff. Let me talk to the nurses, the housekeepers, the people out there. Let me just kind of roam around for a little bit. Give me an hour, you know, and let me see how the emergency room runs. What happens, you know, how the patients interact with the physicians, how the physicians interact with each other, okay? But now we have to avoid poor health in the sense of truly we've gotten to the point of trying to avoid poor health or getting into poor health and trying to be active and an active player in avoiding it. We all know about alcohol, you know. Last time I had a drink was a long time ago, and believe me, I, it's good for me to avoid alcohol. Could you imagine me drunk, you know? I mean, come on, you know? You know, two in the morning, drunk, eating onion rings, you know? And, you know I'm telling you, you know, it's just, it's not a pretty sight. You don't want to see it, you know? And, you know, for choices beyond, you know, I just decided not to drink alcohol. It's just one of those things. I got older and said, you know, you know, there comes a time where I just don't want to drink it. And so I felt that way. However, it can be used, and you all know this, it can be used as self-medication. It can hide a lot of, you know, we're delayed gratification people. You know, we went from medical school, we went on to residency, and we're just kind of moving, moving. And we see this end of the light, you know, this end of the tunnel, you know, we, we see this as being, once we get out into private practice, everything's going to be better and everything's going to be joyous. There will be organ music playing every time I go to work. You know, people will love me and I will love my job, which is totally not true. There will be days where you just don't want to go there. Are you going to start using alcohol or already using alcohol as self-medication? A lot of the times, believe it or not, I firmly believe that depression, bipolar disorder, and various other things are hidden by alcohol. You know, because it quells a lot of the things that might show up otherwise. And so we kind of sometimes, and some physicians will push this down with alcohol and won't realize that there's mental illness going on. You know, I, I've seen a physician actually who rolled his car over, no kidding, you know, was drunk, walked away from the scene, probably not a good thing to do, all right, ended up in our hospital down in El Paso. Someone sutured it up without any of the attendings realizing it, and then he walked away. And yet, when we looked at his history, his brother committed suicide, he had a history of depression, and finally, when I look back now at the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners, it puts out a little paper saying, you know, guess who screwed up this, this month, you know. Uh, he now pees for the, for the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners every month or at random. He also was forced into psychiatric care, which he should have had years and years prior, and he was forced to go to AA meetings, you know, and stand up and go, I eat onion rings, and then, you know, I don't drink anymore. I, too, am an alcoholic. And believe me, I think that there's very important statistical data out there, and we use this in the United States Navy for flyers, is that 12 hours bottle to brief. In other words, you should stay away from alcohol. I firmly believe this now. 
you should stay away from alcohol at least 12 hours prior to the beginning of your shift. The minute that you are in contact with the next doctor who you're taking handoffs from, I think that you should have avoided alcohol for 12 hours. At, at the least eight hours, but 12 hours would be best. And that was the rule. And if you broke that rule in the Navy, you got fired. I mean, that was simple as that. Certainly no alcohol prior to a shift. I've seen it. I've seen it. Hey, come on. You know, I've seen, well, you know, I'm just going to have a glass of wine. You know, it's just, you know, I'm going out to dinner. You know, you, you know how it is sometimes. You know, you get a little pressured. And so in shift work, we're not able to really do that. A social drink when someone's on call might be appropriate. In family practice, you know, I was on call all the time. So when I drank an occasional glass of wine, I was allowed to do that. But with the understanding is I couldn't do more than a one glass of wine, if not one half glass, just to be social. But believe me, you know, when you're out in Harleton, Montana, in the middle of nowhere, you probably need a glass of wine every so often, you know? I mean, my God, you know, you're, you're on call. 24 hours a day out there when I was a family practice physician. So there's such thing as what I call the pleasing physician. Are you the pleasing personality? You want to please the doctor at home. You want to please the patient. You want to just, you just want to go out there and help people because that's what you said during your medical student interview. You meant it. You want to help people. And so you want to make them happy about what you do. And what I've learned over the years, and Naomi will attest to this, is no is a good answer every once in a while. Jason, will you do five lectures next month? No, I won't, you know. Um, uh, will, you give me a thousand, will you give me a thousand milligrams of meperidine? No, I won't, you know. And then all of a sudden it becomes sometimes your problem. People will bounce that back to you and go, you won't do five lectures for me? I can't believe it. You won't give me a thousand milligrams of meperidine? Well, you're the worst doctor I've ever seen. I even got called one time, you know, a quack. Can you believe that? <laughs> you won't give me, you know, meperidine? Why, my doctor's giving that to me all the time. You're just a quack. You won't take care of my pain. You are a bad doctor. You know, now I can take that. I go, yeah, I am today, I guess, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and what I do, no kidding now, what I do is I circle the 800 number for people who hate me, you know, the patient advocates. I circle that and put my name down on it. Here, you know, please feel free to write them. You know, call them. They'll, they'll be around tomorrow. They're there 8 to 5. You know, my name is Dr. Hughes, you know. And so, you know, believe me, you know, I've gotten more complaints that way, you know, and, uh, you know, it's kind of important. Some of them can read it. Some of them can't read that thing, that little pamphlet. And so, ooh, who said that? All right, say no to physicians. I love Matt Mason, how he does this. I am very, very impressed. I've listened to his conversations with consultants. And I agree that sometimes you have to just say what you feel. You know, one time I had a patient who had an ophthalmologic problem. And I went through the entire procedure and I called the ophthalmologist and I said, when would you like to see him? I didn't say, you know, this like, I don't want to really wake you up. No, no, no. When would you like to see? I am consulting you now. You know, when would you like to see him? In the next hour, the next half hour, where may I send him? Do you want to meet him in the clinic? So Matt gives, and I've learned this over time, no mixed signals. You're consulted. I'm consulting you. This is not, you know, I'm calling you up just to, you know, see how you are at 2 in the morning, want to find out, you know, how's the wife, kids. No, nah, no, you're consulting the, the, the doctor. You're not here to make the doctor necessarily the most happy doctor in the world at 2 in the morning, but you're consulting them. And it's your wellness to understand that a lot of physicians might not like that. I say that when you join a practice, go around to the different physicians and know them. 
know, a face-to-face -face with the different physicians really means a lot because if you know those physicians out there who you're consulting, they're going to be less likely to be abrasive over the telephone, although I can understand grumpy at 2 in the morning. I do not understand abrasive and language that's not appropriate for a physician. I do not understand that. Okay, so I've heard this from Matt. That's fine, but it's not going to fly. You know, you're consulted. I love that. That's a great, great line. And I remember that. I remember that line. I'm consulting you now. I'm not consulting you tomorrow. I'm not consulting you nine hours from now. I'm consulting you now. I think that that gives Matt some form of control and keeps his wellness going. I really do, and I think that's important. Be forceful and appropriate and, and very, very methodical about what you do. Is, is insurance going to take play into this? Absolutely not. I've been asked this many times. Well, is the patient insured? I don't know. I'm not allowed to ask that. Are you allowed to ask that? You know, and that's my next question. Uh, you're consulted on this patient. You are on call for this particular patient, and we're going to work together to take care of this patient, regardless of their insurance capability. And when will you be in? I've heard Matt say that. When will you be in? What time will you be in? I love it, okay? When impairment happens, all right? Now, we've gone over a lot of the stressors, the contracts. We've gone over the fishbowl concept. We've gone over some impairment. I've talked to you a little bit about that. But when impairment happens, now, there's varying degrees of impairment. Remember that, that some days you just walk in and you go, you know, this just, this is not my day. I'm not doing a very good job. And I'm going to use my partner who's working with me to kind of bounce things off and just talk with them a little bit while we go through this really miserable day. And you know, you kind of communicate to each other and go, I'm just really having a gut, bad, awful day. And maybe we can work together here and bounce things off of them. If you don't feel comfortable with some of your decision making, you can actually use a colleague to help you with that, believe it or not. And I think that's important, all right? But when impairment and true, difficult, terrible impairment occurs, I think it's very, very important not to ask why it happened. No longer. It's already happened. You know, that's water under the bridge. That's a fire that has been peed upon. You are done with it. Now it's time to move forward. We must move forward and find out what we are going to do about impairment, all right? No one's ever peed on a fire, you know? <laughs> I'm from Texas. We used to do that all the time to put it out, you know? All right. I would demonstrate, but I won't. Um, <clears throat> so impairment, once you discover it, and I've discovered it in, in several, sometimes I've discovered it very late and felt very badly that I didn't discover it earlier. But the discovery process in emergency medicine is very, very difficult, right? You only see your colleagues every so often. But when your colleagues start showing up real, real late, you might smell a little alcohol in their breath. Uh, you might see colleagues that are having, and I've seen this, having to leave during the shift. I'll be, I'll be right back. I've got to go home and take care of something real quick. I'll be, I'll be right back. You know, those sorts of things are signs and signals. But let me tell you, you know, when you look back at that, that's really easy to say, gosh, I should have noticed that in my colleagues. I should have noticed that in myself that I was starting to kind of spin. I was starting to circle the drain. You know, but it's not time now to ask why. It's now time to ask where are we going to go forward. You know, impairment, as I said, the gamut of impairments from mental disease, drugs, alcohol, physical illness, all is considered impairment. And can you avoid it? You know, I think, again, through working through the models I've just discussed with you, working with the different uh, physicians, how to work with them, how to work with your own shift work, how you're going to deal with that as well is very, very important. Okay, you're it. You're impaired. All right. Now what are you going to do? You know, is it possible to be impaired? Uh-uh, not me, no way. Just like pilots, you know, truly, you know, they would watch videos on crashes, you know, ah, that's never going to happen to me. That's the way pilots are. 
you know, thank goodness they're like that, you know. I mean, for the most part. I think JetBlue just says, well, you know, we're going to run it up the, you know, it's miracle time. We're going to see what happens, you know. But I mean, you know, for, for the other airlines, is this still on podcast? No. For the other airlines, for the other airlines, for the most part, no one really gets in the cockpit and says, we're going to crash today, right? You know, they, they have a vested interest, you know. So let's say you're now impaired. What are you going to do, all right? Hopefully someone's going to recognize it. You know, however, there's going to be legal, medical, and personal implications once you are impaired. And I'm not threatening you with this. I'm just saying that's what's going to happen. And you will see at least one person who gets impaired to this point of where they need significant help and they need your support. And that will, of course, be important. Who can you go to? Okay. Well, I happen to know of several different programs out there in the United States. In Texas, what they do is just hang you, okay? Um, so that's, that's certainly one way to do it. You know, you report to the Texas State Medical Board, they immediately go out to your house and, uh, you know, start burning crosses in the front, and then uh, they start, and then they pay you on it to put it, okay, never mind. You know, they, they, you know, they immediately decide that you're not going to practice medicine for six weeks until we sort all this out. Now, that's one way to do it. However, there are entities in both Iowa and Minnesota that I've been very interested in. The Iowa Physicians Health Program is an entity separate from the State Board of Iowa. It is beautiful because what happens is if you want to report a mental illness, if you're having difficulties with alcohol but you want to get over those difficulties, if you're having difficulties with physical impairment, you, you can report to the separate entity who does not report to the State Board as long as you're good and play by the rules. And it's going to be their rules. Yes, it will be. But if you have been having drug abuse, if you've been writing your own prescriptions, if you've been taking drugs from the Pixis in, in, the, in the emergency room, yes, those are things that have happened. This, this is not rocket science. It will occur. Someone will do this in this room. It's not your fault. Sometimes the stress gets to you. Sometimes there's things that just circle around your life. Sometimes there's impairment that starts with mental illness that's being hidden, has been quelled by alcohol and drugs. And now you need to answer to it. You now have to get to the point of getting help. And now, just one of my friends, smart, smart gentleman from Tennessee, several of my friends gathered around him and said, at his house, said, you're impaired. We're not taking it anymore. You know, you're not going to work today. You know, we've had it. We're reporting you to the board. You know, so you can self-report or you, you know, let us report. It, it, it's your you know, decision. And so he self-reported. But what I love about the Iowa Physicians Health Program, it is indeed a separate entity. So the Iowa State Board of Medical Examiners may not know anything about your impairment. When you write up your particular application to the Iowa State Board of Medical Examiners, if you've already gone through the Physicians Health Program, I, you know, I think that it's important to realize that they say answer no to do you have problems with alcohol. Answer no to problems with mental illness because it's already being taken care of. The state board doesn't want to hear about it. You know, the separate entity does. The state board will hear about it, though, if you don't follow through with the plans of the Iowa Physicians Health Program. All right? You have the decision of report or self-report. If someone reports you, they're going to look at things a little bit closer. Okay? As long as what they hired, the separate entity, the Iowa Physicians Health Program, Minnesota had the similar thing. I actually talked with the folks up in Minnesota to write a, well, a small article for uh, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. 50% increase in self-reporting by dentists who are using drugs, medications. 50% increase in reporting. Why? Because they knew that if they self-reported to the separate entity than the state board, they wouldn't have their license jerked away from them. They would have an ability to work with this special program and they would have the ability to continue the practice of medicine once they got things straightened out.
Okay? Do you think it'll happen to you? I don't know. You know, many of you in this room are saying, no, never, never, never. It's always possibility. Harlow's going to talk about longevity, and I think longevity in the career is something that we have to look at again. We have to do some statistics and find out, you know, how many people are quitting emergency medicine 20 years into it, 10 years into it, 5 years into it, and why? How many people are changing their practice one year after being in emergency medicine and why? And again, looking at your goals and desires will keep you away from getting into this idea of emergency medicine is this sweet deal where you work just 12 shifts a month. Uh-uh. That's not the way it is. And if you're in the specialty, how do you figure out whether or not you like the specialty? You go into it. You figure it out from there, and you don't be afraid to change. If it doesn't fit into your morals or your morale, you know, then it's time to change, and consider change carefully. Good friend of mine actually ended up, he uh, was a very religious man. We were down in El Paso. That's one good reason to be religious or drunk, one of the two. So he was in El Paso and, and he said, he started talking to me. He was from Utah and he said, I'm a really religious guy and I, you know, I don't understand these drunk people and these people on heroin. I'm, I'm having difficulties with that. And I'm thinking on going into anesthesiology, you know, where these drunk people are asleep, so I don't have to deal with them. No, he, he was just thinking that, you know, maybe I need to change. I don't feel comfortable in this moral setting. I don't feel right. And we talked about it for a long time, and he knew that I'd change careers. I, I change it about every year. He, he knew that I'd change careers and that he was interested in my career pathway and why I chose what I chose and how it was to change careers. And he did so. He went to Salt Lake City and uh, became an anesthesiologist and now is teaching anesthesiology. A wonderful, wonderful doctor. So you got to remember to take care of yourself. You know, if you don't like the career you chose, get out of it. It's okay. You know, you'll see Bobby Peters and I selling shoes once we get totally gray hair. You know, come on into that store. Believe me, that'll be a different way of looking at shoes. So where's a friend when you need one? Well, you should know where and you should know that the people you check out to. It's like I've said to several people here is that when I check out patients to a physician and I leave that emergency room, one thing for sure that I don't want to hear is about that patient last night. I don't want to hear about it that way. You know, when, when I come back on shift, uh, you did this and this and this wrong, and boy, you know, you could have done this better. Whew, I can't, boy, we, we drug that patient through that code. I don't want to hear about it that way. I want to hear about it from a standpoint of calling to colleague. You know, there will be things that you miss, there will be things that they miss, and how we report to each other is important, okay? Will you have friends within your own department, and it's important. So friends who might notice your potential impairment or, you know, that they can address with their own friends. So good health, I'm going to give it to you. Running, swimming, avoiding alcohol, working on anchor sleep, which I think is bogus. They talk about anchor sleep all the time. You know, if you, um, you know, sleep during dark hours, then you're less likely to get depressed. Uh -uh, you'll be depressed at one point in your life just because you're working, you know, through seasonal affective disorder, if anything, you know, because of the night shifts that you're working. So will you be eaten or will you, you know, have to eat someone for lunch? You know, will you have the support if you're being eaten? That's also important. And so that last part about the fishbowl, remember to look at the objective criticism. You're going to be sued too. It's okay. You know, I've been sued before. Y'all be sued again. I'm okay with it, I guess. It took me a while to realize that lawyers were just the way they were, you know. They're very objective about what they do. It's very easily. It's a retrospective scope. We all know that that points towards an anus. And what happens... <laughs> what, what, what happens with lawyers 
is, and I've seen this during deposition, you know, one of them slammed his hand down and go, I object to what you just said. This is deposition. It's not even court. It's not, Judge Wapner, it's very worse. Well, I object to your objective. And then he slams down a book. Well, you can't object to my, this is a deposition. You can't object to what I just objected to, you know, and then pretty soon my head swimming. And at the end of the deposition, three hours, they shook hands and said, I'll see you, George. We'll see you later. Bye-bye now. Uh, Want to do lunch tomorrow? You know, it's a, huh, and I'm like, huh, you know, kind of hanging on. Well, you're not going to be loved by everyone. And it's okay. And can you deal with it? And the one-person family, I want to discuss it. For the longest time in my life, I've been a one-person family. But when I went on family practice interviews, what I was told by, it was a great statement. If you're one person, if you're a single person and have a dog, a cat, or a parakeet at home, I'm telling you, that you're still a family and you deserve to be treated like family. It is not a, appropriate for you to do every holiday, for you to do every weekend, for you to do every night shift just because you don't have kids. That's not the way it is. People, for the most part, as far as I know, chose to have children who vomit on them at 2 in the morning. All right? I don't have children that vomit on me at 2 in the morning unless I'm in the emergency room at the time. I'm happy with that, but it is not my goal to feel sorry for these people who have their kids. I will try to help. I will try to be a part of that in a, in a group practice. But remember, the one-person family is just as important as the nine-person family. Having support from that emergency director, saying no, but doc, I need 1,000 milligrams. You know, again, saying no and how to be, not be the best doctor in the world. You don't have to. So you're going to have all these things for the good life. I love this. ATLS, ACLS, PALS, uh, neonatal resuscitation program. You're going to be doing constant advanced life support, I think, for your entire year. You know, and then it's time to roll around again and start those courses all over again. And man, when I started the neonatal resuscitation program, my eyes are bleeding. You know, about halfway through that, I'm like hanging on for the ride, you know. <laughs> And continuing education, you're going to have to do administrative work. And yes, you have no control over those things. You know, but you're judged on these things and how you work with these different people. The only thing you have control over sometimes, and only sometimes, um, because sometimes there's overflow incontinence that occurs, and that's your bladder. <laughs> All right? So is pay performance, you know, pay for performance important to you? A slower pace or a faster pace? And in reality, the well-being is tied together in all these important things. It's an important web. And it begins with that fishbowl that you're going to be in. Everybody's going to be looking at you. Everybody's going to see how you do. Are you a sieve? Do you call up the consultant just to kind of bounce things off of them in the morning? You know, do you know the consultant? Or do you feel comfortable with the things that you're doing at that point? Believe me, residency is a lot different once you get out and see the real world. And that you can't be looking at that light saying, ah, that light, that, that private practice is going to be the best thing in the world. I can't wait to, to leave this one-horse town, Iowa City. You know, there's no way I'm going to get out and I'm going to just kick butt and see nine patients per hour and do procedures every five minutes. I'm going to love it, you know. It's not the way it is. You must have support in both arenas between your professional and personal life, even if you're the one-person family. Find the way in which you can get that support, either through church, either through friends. There's so many different ways you can find that support. Myself, I found it through dog clubs, you know, and yes, dogs also urinate on stuff as well. So as you know that that's been my theme, my, my underlying theme throughout the entire has been bladder control throughout the entire uh, morning here. So I'm going to end and, and open up the, the realizing that I've gone just right at 50, five, zero minutes. You know, see if there's any questions or if you have any concerns. Otherwise, I'll be able to let you have a bladder break as well. I appreciate your attention. Anything? Any questions at all?